0: Revival is a reawakening of the work of God, not of man, but of God. And God must be involved if revival is going to happen. Not just our building being full of people, but our people being filled and fueled by God. I mean, far more exciting than a filled sanctuary are spirit-filled hearts. And the great thing is when both of those things kind of collide together. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing an awakening here. I once heard uh, (coughs) Tony Evans. You may know who Tony Evans is. He's a famous preacher. Tony Evans compared uh, God bringing revival to a pilot trying to land an airplane. You know, a plane, he says, can't just land anywhere, anytime. It needs certain things to happen, right? It needs, first of all, a long, smooth surface for landing. It may need weather conditions to not be too severe. It needs an open runway free of congestion. And oftentimes, if those things, if all those elements aren't there, what will a pilot do when it's time to land? He'll start to circle, right? And he'll wait until the conditions are right for the landing to occur. We'll circle for a long period of time, even at times, waiting for the conditions to be receptive. And Tony Evans would say that the same is true for the revival of God. And I want to just tell you something this morning, that God desires always to pour out on you a spiritual awakening and a renewed, on-fire feeling for the Lord. But the thing is, the landing strip is not a building. It's not a church service. The landing strip of that revival is a receptive heart. The landing strip is a receptive heart. It's on you whether or not your runway is going to be ready for him. He desires, he circles, he waits, longing to bring you, bring me, bring us something wonderful. But the conditions of our heart's runways are oftentimes Too busy for him, too distracted for him. Our love for sin is too resistant to him. Our attitude in worship is too stifling for him and quenching toward him. And so he keeps circling and circling and circling, waiting for our conditions of our hearts to be receptive. And so today, as we open 2 Kings, what we're going to talk about is how to clear the runway, how to clear the runway and allow God to do an amazing work in each of our hearts so that he may do something collectively among us. Praise God for that. He is. Last week, we looked at uh, 1 Samuel 17. Where are we? In just a moment, we'll get some context here. Uh, This isn't like the passages that I've preached prior, and I said this last week. that's going to be very unorthodox, so just kind of follow me here. But last week, we talked about the great King David and talked about David and Goliath, how We talk about David and Goliath, but the one main star of the show is the one that we don't mention a lot, and that's God. He is the star of the story of David and Goliath. That God prevails over his enemies, the ones outside the camp, that would be the Philistines, external enemies. The church, we said, was unstoppable against those same external enemies. That We looked at the verse in Matthew 16 that said, the gates of hell, the, gate, the power of death will not prevail against the church. And how could Jesus say the power of death would not prevail against the church? Because in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Oh, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? And the reason he said that is because Jesus conquered the grave. That external enemy is defeated. But this week, we're going to take a 180 degree turn. And that is, we're going to look at another great king. His name is Josiah, and I imagine that you probably know a whole lot less about him than you may have heard a few things about King David. God calls us not just to see that the external enemies are going to be prevailed over, that even death, where is your sting, where is your victory, but also God calls us to prevail over internal enemies sort of inside our camp. Sometimes the biggest enemy is here, right? The biggest enemy of revival in your heart is yourself. It's your flesh. And so before we get to Josiah, I want to provide just a word of context. In context, there was a guy named Manasseh. He was a king of Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah. And Manasseh's reign was marked by absolute terror. Uh, Manasseh was Josiah's grandfather. And so before we can get to the context of Josiah's life... I need you to understand the context of uh, Manasseh's reign. So 2 Kings chapter 21, verses 1 through 6 say this. And I may jump around a little bit and stop at times, so just follow with me. We're going to read a lot of scripture today, okay? Hope that's okay with you, that we do Bible stuff here. (laughs) It says this, 2 Kings 21, 1 through 6 says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned, hear this number, 55 years. He reigned for 55 years in Jerusalem. Verse two says, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. That'd be the Canaanites, the pagans. Verse three, four, here's the evidence of that. he rebuilt the high places. So all the things that God deconstructed, the idolatry, the paganism, Manasseh came and put all those things back. And I'm not going to go into this much, but I'll just explain it real quick. We're talking about idols here. They built idols to animals. They built idols to constellations, to goddesses, to fertility deities, Baal, Asherah, which we'll talk about in just a moment. They reconstructed all these things to violate the very first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me, and they, Manas said, just said, we're gonna, we're gonna throw that out. We're gonna do all these other things to worship these gods. Verse three continues and says, He rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah his father had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal and made an asherah. Those would be fertility gods. And he worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. All the host of heaven and served them. Verse 4 says, And he built altars in the house of the Lord. We've talked a lot about the temple lately in Hebrews, right? With this place of worship, this exclusive area where God was worshiped in the Old Testament. Don't miss that verse. He built altars to pagan gods in God's house. That's radical. That's radical evil, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. Verse six says, And he burned his son as an offering. He burned his son. As an offering, and he used fortune telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil, you yeah, know, no kidding, in the sight of the Lord, provoking God, provoking him to anger. Later in chapter 21, verse 16, it says this: Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood. So he killed people, he killed innocent people, till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. That's saying, with their blood. Besides the sin that he made Judah to sin so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. In other words, he motivated them and influenced them to do all the wicked things that he was doing. Needless to say, the book of the law, their Bibles, the law of Moses, was forgotten. It was discarded. There wasn't a Bible in every home. The temple and the priests were where and whom would teach the law. And so if it's not in the temple, and you got pagan things happening in the temple, then there's no Bible in the temple. It's, they're, they're not teaching that. They're teaching all of these other things and worshiping all these other deities. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, was desecrated. In fact, according to Jewish tradition, it was King Manasseh who murdered the prophet Isaiah, who was calling Judah to repentance. This was a bad dude, you guys. This was a bad dude, an evil, evil king. And the result of that is that God promised to bring disaster on Judah and to purge it. Now, we know that they eventually would go into exile. But he promised them that his wrath was going to be poured out on Judah because of the sins of Manasseh. In fact, in verses 12 and 13, he talks about the illustration that he uses for purging Judah is cleaning a dish, wiping everything off of it, and then turning it upside down to let it dry. Wipe it clean. That's his illustration for that. Well, Manasseh had a son. His name was Ammon who took after his father, but after a short reign of only two years, his servants conspired against him and had him assassinated, which meant he had a young son, a very young son. His son, Manasseh's grandson, was a guy named Josiah, and Josiah then became king. Josiah was only eight years old when he became the king of Judah, and he took an absolute mess of a nation. Eight years old. He was king about 350 years after King David. Speaking of King David, look at chapter 22, verse 2. It says, and he, that's Josiah, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David, his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. In other words, Josiah had the heart of someone that was devoted to God, devoted to that first commandment to love the Lord your God first, no other gods before him. But after 55 years of absolute terror, Judah was on life support, and it would take so much time for the idolatrous damage to be undone. Now, that's a lot of context, I realize that, but it's very important to talk about that before we get to the meat of what we're talking about today, and that is that revival would come through Josiah's kingship, but I want you to see with me what conditions had to be there for that to happen. There's going to be three conditions that we're going to look at this morning, okay? The first condition is a heart broken over sin. A heart that is broken over sin. We're gonna see this in the life of Josiah. The passage goes on in chapter 22, and it talks about in the 18th year of Josiah's reign. So you do the math, 18 years go by from an eight year old kid. He's about 26 when we step into things here in his reign. He has this idea. He's like, you know, I I see this temple and it's an absolute mess. And I don't even know if he's thinking of the paganism in there. I really don't think that. I think he just sees it's full of clutter. It's probably like some of your attics, right? You're like, we probably should clean the attic. It looks like a pretty good mess in there. And then you just put off for another five years and then you sell your house and you're like, well, now the problem has solved itself. We don't even have to do it anymore, right? Maybe that's not you. Maybe that's just me projecting. I don't know. But he has this initiative, and so he sees the temple. It's very important, this high structure, the biggest place in the city. (coughs) And Josiah says... It's the hub of Judah's worship, clearly, but also he sees that it's seen a lot of neglect. And so what he decides to do is to raise money to repair the temple and to pour into it some money and to fix it up and make it look nice. And so he sends his representatives and hires some workers. He supplies the work. He has this big project of cleaning and restoring, and that project begins. I'm summarizing the first few verses of chapter 22. Well, here's what happens. Maybe similarly to when you clean your attic. While cleaning the temple, something very, very invaluable is found. They find something precious. And it's more precious than your old college tennis racket or the pair of jeans that you can't fit in anymore. Okay. It's not like that. There's something invaluable. Some of you guys are like, hey, stop stepping on my toes like that, all right? I didn't mean it. But he finds something invaluable. For the first time in generations, the word of God that had been discarded and buried was suddenly rediscovered. It's really a thrilling tale. I mean, it's not a tale it's really happened. They find the Bible. Look at verses 8 and then 10 and 11. And Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, he said, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord, in the temple. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. Look down at verses 10 and 11. Then Shaphan, the one who just read it, he, he was the secretary. He told the king, that's Josiah. He said, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. Pause. A book. A book. He doesn't say he's given me the holy book. He just says, he gave me a book. They have no clue what this thing is. And they're starting to realize, perhaps this is important. Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. It says, and Shaphan read it before the king. So Josiah has now heard it. Verse 11 then says, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. In context, you may think that's a really weird reaction. <laughs> Tearing clothes was a display of inner anguish. Can you imagine if, if we tore our clothes every time we were really upset over something? Honey, I'm going to need you to buy me some new undershirts. Sonic got my order wrong again. And I just, I lost it, right? Um, obviously on us, this is kind of lost on us. But when they expressed deep, deep inner anguish, they tore their clothes. It's like Hulk Hogan in WC, You know, rah, That's what they did. They tore their clothes as a way of expressing, seriously, deep, deep inner anguish. And so <laughs> the Bible is found... They read, and they know what they've found at this point, and then they read it to Josiah, who is devastated. He tears his clothes. In fact, a few verses later, it says that he is weeping. He is grieving. In verse 12, Josiah then addresses the temple officials, and then we read verse 13. He says, go, talk to God, inquire of the Lord for me and for the people. You're, they're the temple people. They talk to God on behalf of the people. And for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found, for great is the wrath Of the Lord that is kindled against us. That's bad news, man. Because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. What Josiah understands is that the Word of God has absolutely exposed a problem. He has been exposed, and he sees that our whole nation has now been exposed. What he sees is God's holiness, this perfection, and this standard of absolute holiness, and then he looks around and contrasts that and sees absolute wickedness. And he understands, based on this this law, that the wrath of God is going to be poured out on us. That's what he's saying. He understands that sin is not just against a law. It is against God. Don't you know that all sin is relational in nature? It is not just a violation of law. All sin, all breaking of God's direction, is first and foremost relational in nature. You know, you feel differently when you break the speed limit than when you break a promise for a best friend, don't you? Or a spouse. Those things feel a little bit different, don't they? Because when you break the speed limit, you've broken a law. But when you break a promise, what have you done? You have sinned against another. And you have broken and fractured and hurt a relationship. Josiah understood the difference. The way that Israel had sinned against God was not just by breaking a law, but they had desecrated, and violated God himself. All sin is relational in nature, and it caused Josiah to grieve, and it caused him to grieve deeply. He properly responded, disturbed by personal, but also disturbed by corporate disobedience, by the neglect of God and his word, by the rampant idolatry, these high places that had been built, by the disorder and the injustice, people being marginalized, people being innocently Killed blood in the streets. He was broken over it. He had the right heart conditions. And I don't mean like heart conditions, I mean, he had the right heart conditions. He understood that when you see God's holiness and you see your sin, the proper response to that is brokenness. And I will say the same thing to you, church. Before you will see revival, and we're about to see this, you must be broken. You must be broken. You must be broken over sin. Be broken over the sin in your heart, but also be broken of the sin around you. Be broken of your neglect of the disciplines, your neglect of God's word. You may not be burying it in a temple, but we sure can bury it deeply in our hearts, can't we? And say, it's an afterthought. It's in the back of my mind, not in the forefront of my mind. We can bury prayer to where it's something we do at meals and right before bed because it's the last thing that we think about, but it's not a discipline, it's not an asset. It's not seen with value. We can bury fasting and think that's only for the holy Christians, like the super holy Christians. No, it's a discipline that's instructed to believers. Meditation on Scripture and considering the things and how God may impress them on your heart. Silence and solitude and allowing God to minister. How can you expect to be sensitive to the prompting of God if you never stop and listen? These are disciplines, and we neglect them. And we must be broken over that. We have to be broken over the fact that we neglect the heart condition of receiving the revival. But not just that. I think we could talk a lot about idolatry as well. <clears throat> idolatry is, is putting anything in the place where only God deserves to be. It is making God truly an afterthought. It is putting him down and putting other things high. And I think that the, the main culprit of this is self I think that our key idolatry starts with self, and in two ways. It starts with either self-gratification or self-preservation. We look at things and say, what am I going to do today? How does this please me? What do I want to do in my free time? How does it please me? Well, I don't want to do that. It doesn't please me. That is self-gratification, and it's the filter through which we filter everything. The other aspect of that is self-preservation. How does this most serve me? Instead of thinking, how does this most glorify God? We think, through, through this right here. How is it for me? And this is the beginning of idolatry. We need to be broken over our neglect of disciplines, broken over our own idolatry. And I'm not going to dwell on it because we're about to talk more about that in a second. But God's response to Josiah's contrition, his brokenness, is to pour out blessing and mercy. And again, that brokenness is the first step of this revival. In chapter 22, look at verses 19 and 20. <coughs> excuse me y'all verses 19 and 20 say and this is God speaking because your heart was penitent repentant right broken Because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they would become a desolation and a curse. And you have torn your clothes and wept before me. Don't miss the words before me there. He said, I have also heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, meaning one day you will die, You shall be gathered to your grave in peace. Your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back word to the king. Here's what that means. God's wrath is still going to be poured out. But while God's wrath was still not satisfied, it was because of Josiah's brokenness, it was delayed. Guys, God pours out favor on a heart that is broken and contrite over sin. He pours out favor on a heart that is broken and contrite over sin. By the way, this guy's ancestor, King David, who we talked about a moment ago, David knew this very well. In Psalm 51, 17, it says, The sacrifices of God, next thing out of his mouth, you'd expect to be lambs and goats and all kinds of things. No, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And David wrote those words down right after he had committed murder and deception and adultery. He understood that God wanted his brokenness before he wanted anything else. He wanted his brokenness. If you seek revival in this room today, you seek a personal spiritual awakening, I think that we all seek that in some way. When was the last time that you just broke before God and laid it all bare? When was the last time that you stopped and just searched your heart and figuratively tore your clothes and just said, God, I'm in anguish over who I am in comparison to who you are. If you haven't done it, then don't expect revival because what precedes revival is a heart that is absolutely broken because it's only when we realize how broken we are that we can understand God is the one that puts us back together. This is not a story of despair. It is one of encouragement. Josiah's reaction is not just to mourn. The very next thing that he does is he repents. And you think, isn't that kind of the same thing? It's not. Repentance means to take a 180-degree turn. You're going towards sin. You're going toward evil. It is to turn and go in the opposite direction. And so what Josiah does next is not only does he grieve and not only does he mourn, he gets up and he says, I'm going to make some changes. And that's exactly what he does. He doesn't just talk about it. He decides, I'm going to be about it. And so the second thing, this, this condition of our heart that must be altered is not just <clears throat> our heart broken over sin. But it's a heart that is ready and willing to deconstruct idols. A heart that is ready and willing to deconstruct idols. <clears throat> Notice that God didn't move on Josiah and Judah because it had a good reputation or a clean background. What happens is that God redeems the mess right? God redeems the mess. So long as the individual can humbly admit the mess and come penitently to the one who can clean it up, God honors not the fact that someone is perfect. He honors the fact that someone admits that they aren't. Josiah's call is then for corporate repentance. And I love, man, I love this chapter of God's Word. Look at this with me. Chapter 23, verses 1 and 2 start like this. Remember, Josiah's torn his clothes, he's wept, and now he gets up on his feet, and he says, it's time to go do some stuff. Verses 1 and 2 say, Then the king sent all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem, were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord. That's the place of worship, right? Where all those terrible things happen under Manasseh. And with him all the men of Judah and all, don't miss the word all, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. Don't miss the word all there. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. That's what happens, right? The king stood there, all his heart, all his soul, he decided to go and, and do this thing. Look at verse 3. I love this. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord, an agreement. That's how it's going to happen, God. To walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul. To perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined the covenant. Don't miss the word all there. The reforms then happen in verses four through 20. Now, I'm mean, I talk about deconstructing idols here. And for the sake of time, I'm not gonna read verses four through 20, but <laughs> I, got the, remember I told you guys, this is the big Bible. Whenever I'm reading like a ton of scripture, this is the one that I bring. I just took a picture of my page and I want you guys to see it, okay? Go ahead and put that up there. I know you can't read that, okay? Most of you probably can't, under, can't read those words, not because you can't understand them because they're very small, but I want you to pay attention to all the boxes and the circles. And the reason those boxes circle, and you may not be able to read that. I don't know if you can or not. But you see a lot about things being burned and brought out and destroyed and removed and broken and defiled and pulled down. You see all that, right? I mean, just look at it with me, starting in verse 4. Maybe you can see it, maybe you can't, but just trust me here. You'll see the parts that are boxed there. The king commanded Hilkiah the high priest, the high priest of the second order— The keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal and Asherah, the host of heaven. It says he burned them outside of Jerusalem. The next box down there says those also who burned incense to Baal, to the sun, the moon, the constellations, all the hosts of the heavens. It says he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside of Jerusalem. Verse 7 then says he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord. Yeah, you read that right. In God's house, there were male cult prostitutes evil stuff happening, where the women wove hangings for the Asherah. Verse 8 says, he brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah. So all these guys who were doing pagan practices, he brought them out. It says he broke down the high places. Later down there it says, verse 10, he defiled Topheth, which was an altar of, of pagan worship, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom. It says that, one, that no one, this is what happened there, that no one might burn his son or daughter as an offering to Melech, which means it was happening. Do you see the deconstruction here, right? That he takes an initiative and he runs with it. Verse 11 says he removed horses that were dedicated to the sun. It says he burned the chariots of the sun with fire. Down in verse 12 it says he pulled down and broke into pieces cast uh, cast the dust of them into the brook Kidron. Verse 13 says the king defiled high places. I don't have this page behind me, but you just keep going. In verse 14, it says he broke in pieces, pillars. He cut down ashram, filled the places with bones of men. Down in verse 15, it says he burned the Asherah. He pulled it down, burned. I mean, so many times. 19, Josiah removed all the shrines from the high, high places that were in the cities of Samaria. Verse 20 then says, and he sacrificed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars and burned human bones on them. And then he returned to Jerusalem. I mean, this guy went absolute scorched earth on idolatry. He didn't just talk about it. He didn't just be contrite. He got up and he made moves. I mean, that is pretty exhaustive, is it not? And then verse 24, one more time, says, moreover, Josiah. This is a this is a a negative and a positive. Josiah put away. There's your negative. He put away the mediums and the necromancers, and the household gods and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and, and Jerusalem. So he put those away. And the verse continues and says that he might positive establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. What was he doing here? He was throwing out all of the idols. He was casting out, deconstructing all of the things that were competing with God. And he was establishing that which said, it is only God. He wanted revival. And so he was not just broken over sin. He made active deconstructing changes to remove idolatry. And I love verse 25 that says, and meant, listen to how weighty this statement is. Before him, Josiah, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. You know why that verse is amazing? Because David came before him. And it says that he loved the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength more than David. You might not have known that. That's a big deal to be able to say that about this guy, Josiah. I love this verse so much because it is the perfect summary of Judah's problem as well as our problem today. You know what our problem is? That every place that you have sinned in your life, every place that I have sinned in my life, is a place where you have not given God all of you. Every place that you have sinned in your life is a place where you have not given God all of you. Where you still have a standing altar, a place where you're devoted to something that is competing with God. And you may think, I don't have altars. (laughs) Like, I don't have some shrine built in my closet. Oh man, but we do. We have altars. We have the altar of our convenience. We have the altar of our happiness. We have the altar of our schedules, the altar of our time, and we bow to them. We have the altar of our money, and we are greedily holding on to it. We have the altar of sex and lust, and we are insatiable over it. We have the altar of our preferences, and we do not want to give them up. We have the altar of our pride and our ego and our self-gratification, and we do not like to live for another. We have the altar of our bellies, the altar of our devices, the altar of our discontentment, the altar of our impatience, and the list goes on and on and on and on. It's every place where God says one thing and we decide we're going to do it a different way. That's an altar. It's saying God's not first in this one. I want it my way. The essence of all of Josiah's deconstruction was that God does not share his own. He doesn't share his own. He does not compete for what is his. It's the first commandment and the greatest commandment. The first commandment that I've been mentioning, Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. It's Matthew 22, 37, and 38 that Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. He knew what he was talking about. But at the end of the day, every sin that you have ever committed comes back to right there, as we have said, "God doesn't get all of me. I want it this way." You know, some of us in this room say that we want revival, but we are not yet ready to deconstruct the idols. Be broken over sin, but maybe we struggle to deconstruct the idols and to clear the runway. That's what it is. It's clearing the runway and saying, I want this thing so badly. And God says, I'm waiting. I'm willing, but I'm waiting. We hesitate to say the joy of the Lord is my strength, not the other stuff. To say when all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. And we cling to the altars of our own making. Guys, the fact of the matter is God redeems the mess. But we have to be willing to turn it over to him. God didn't bless Josiah because Israel was great, man, they had messed up greatly. He blessed Josiah because he was repentant. He was willing to deconstruct idols, and we must be willing to do the same. Brokenness over sin, a heart that is ready and willing to deconstruct idols, and third and finally, a heart that knows the need for Passover substitution. I know that's kind of a mouthful, but it all has a place, okay? A heart that knows the need for Passover substitution. You know, I would argue that revival's um, cornerstone is Passover. Think, what do you mean? It's an Old Testament feast. The reason why the revival's cornerstone is Passover is because we cannot attain perfect purity. But God has done something to achieve that for us. 2 Kings 23, 21 through 23. I've skipped over it. We're going to come back to it now. It says, and the king, so this is after the deconstruction of all the idols, it says, He returned to Jerusalem, and his next initiative is this. And the king <coughs> <coughs> commanded all the people, <clears throat> keep the Passover to the Lord your God, <clears throat> as it is written in the book, in this book of the covenant. For listen to this, no such Passover had been kept. Since the days of the judges who judged Israel, or during all the days of the kings of Israel or the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. You know what that means? He says, not since the judges. If you were to just grab this chunk of your Bible and go back and find the book of Judges, you would find that that is before David. (laughs) You would think that David, a man after God's own heart, would have instituted the most important feast, the Passover, but not even David had instituted the Passover in the way that God had instructed, but Josiah did. He biblically celebrated the Passover. And you may be thinking, why is that so important? The reason the Passover was so important, let's just do a quick recap. Passover, what is it? Israel was in bondage in Egypt, right? They were enslaved to a nation in Egypt. And God did the whole let my people go thing. Moses, you're going to go in there and tell them to let my people go. Obviously, Pharaoh resists that. And God says, okay, I'm going to stick out my mighty outstretched arm and bring plagues upon Egypt, one by one, until ten of them had been achieved. And Pharaoh's heart was so hardened through all of it. The tenth plague was the death angel that swept over the region of Egypt, passed over the the houses of the Israelites. But why did the death angel pass over those houses? It wasn't because they were good. It wasn't because the Israelites were good people. It wasn't because they loved God more than anything. It wasn't because they had achieved some moral standing. The, the death angel passed over their houses because God had told them, if you slaughter a lamb and take the blood of the pure lamb and paint it over your door, doorpost, I will look at the blood of the lamb and I will pass over your household. I will look at the substitute that there has been a death in place of your death and I will pass over that household. God providing a substitute that people could go free from the death penalty. Guys, our God saves by substitution and liberation. And that's exactly what Passover is all about. And I'm here to tell you, the reason why Passover is essential to revival is because our God will do it again. He will do it again. Because there's no one in here that is moral, that is righteous. We need to be passed over. We need a substitute. Josiah wasn't just broken over sin on earth. He didn't just see the need to deconstruct idols that stood in, God's, in the way of following God. He saw his ongoing need for God's salvation. And this is why he said to institute the Passover, because he understood that even though this is true of him, verse 25, that before him there was no king who turned to the Lord with all of his heart, all of his soul, with all of his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. You know, the next verse is so jarring, because that sounds like a perfect king to meet you guys. That sounds like an amazing king, but the very next verse says this. But still, the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. As wonderful as Josiah was, he could not deal with man's big sin problem. Josiah was good. In a sense, he saved, but he was not the Savior. An amazing king, but he wasn't the forever king. God's justice still had to be paid. We still need a Passover lamb. And we're about to start cooking. We still need a Passover lamb. Guys, I want you to understand something. This is true of the Passover that was first instituted in Egypt, and it is true of Calvary, and it's true for me and you today. That when Jesus died on the cross, God's wrath wasn't extinguished. It wasn't extinguished. It wasn't deleted. It was satisfied. God did not overlook sin. He didn't say, ah, I'm so loving, don't worry about it. You understand that, right? The wrath of God had to be said. How could God be a God of justice and say, ah, don't worry about that. If you saw any human judge in your lifetime that had a, a murdering criminal in front of them and that person said the judge said you look like you're really sorry for it don't worry about it what would you say about that judge corrupt evil terrible how can you let him go free you would say something has to be done this is injustice you see this person needs to be punished you see god cannot look at you and me terrible terribly sinful people He cannot look at me and say, the wages of sin is death. He cannot say to us, he's already said, the the day that you eat of that tree, you will surely die. And that is your curse to bear. He cannot then say, you look really sorry for it. Don't worry about it. As loving as that may sound, it is absolute scandal. It is injustice. I want you to understand that the cross of Christ, that was not God overlooking our sin. It was God becoming a substitute for our sin. It was not God saying, Don't worry about it. I pardon it. It was God saying, I paid for it. You see, the good news of the gospel is not that God says, Forget about it. It's that God says, I see you in your terrible state, your sinful state, and I send my son Jesus to go and pay the penalty so that I may pass over you in grace and mercy and forgiveness. That's the gospel. I've said this before and I'll say it again. It is the fact that God treated Jesus on the cross as if he had lived your life so that he could treat you as if you had lived his life. The fact of the matter is that if all we do to clear our runway is weep over our sin and try to clean up our act, we still miss the most important aspect of a heart that can even possibly be near God. And that is that we must understand that there is a son of God who reconciles us to him. We do not do it on our own. You can love the Lord your God with all of who you are, like Josiah, and the wrath of God must still be poured out. Passover, the Lamb of God. That's why John 1, 29, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, and I love this verse, Jesus is arriving on the scene, and what does John the Baptist say? He says, the next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You know why he took it away? Because he took it on himself. That's why First Corinthians 15, 57 can say so boldly, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory, not by forgetting about it, but he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He became the payment, y'all. He bore the cross. He bore the wrath reserved for you and me. It's Romans 5, 8 through 11, which I think is the best example of this. It says, but God shows his love for us. reconciliation, you know what reconciliation is, it's two parties that had a good relationship and have been since, since been divided and severed and broken. And that is our story. But the good news story of the gospel is that Jesus entered into our misery, bore that misery, bore that wrath so that we who are far apart from God can be reconciled unto him. Man, the gospel is good news. And it's available to you if you clear your runway. God is ready to descend on you. He's ready to enrich your life. And I don't mean make you rich, I mean enrich your life. He's ready to bring revival. And revival in your heart can begin this morning. It can begin right now if your heart conditions are right. Where is your unconfessed sin? are you ready to lay it bare? Are you ready to clear the runway? Where are the places in your life where you have still left idols standing, where you've given things and people and stuff and work and your time? You've given all these things to everything except for God, and he has become a relegated afterthought instead of your forethought. Are you ready to burn them? Are you ready to take those things and destroy them and remove them from the temple? Are you ready to cast them out so that there is nothing left distracting? Are you ready to crush them to dust as it says Josiah did to these physical idols? Are we ready to do that? Otherwise, the plane's going to keep circling. Are you ready to destroy that which stands between you and revival? And do you rest on the Passover lamb? We can be broken over sin. We can try to clean up our act. But at the end of the day, you can never make yourself clean. We can only do that by resting in the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. Oh, death, where's your sting? Where's your victory? It is in that grave that Jesus left behind. You know, the conditions of your runway, they don't have to be perfect. To be honest, your life may just be a downright mess. You're in good company, but you have to be willing. You have to be receptive. You gotta be ready, and you gotta be vulnerable. You know, there's a lot of misery in this room today. The conditions of our runways, they're an absolute mess. And it feels like, for some of you, I know, like it's too daunting of a task to even begin to clear the runway. So God's going to keep circling because my life is in absolute disarray. Can I just tell you something? This guy, Josiah, who you may have never even heard of before today, I guarantee you that your life is not a bigger mess than male cult prostitutes desecrating the house of God, that it's not more devastating than sacrificing little boys and girls to false gods, that it's not more devastating than blood that is covering the city of Jerusalem from the east to the west. God can redeem your mess, but you have to be ready for Him too. You have to be willing and receptive. Are you ready to be broken over your sin? Are you ready to deconstruct your idols? Are you ready at the end of the day to rest in the Passover lamb by faith, not by your works? Let's respond and ask for revival.